Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Go wash, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is, this, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, O oh, man, uh, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he, see, how then does he now see? His parents answered them and, he, and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he, he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will answer. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that, though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? He answered him, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why is this a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from? Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if any one is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone open the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, we could do nothing. 
They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world. Those who do not see may see, and those who may see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. When I was in seminary, I shared an apartment with a man who was blind. And he was, he was totally blind. You could flash a camera right in front of his eyes, and he would have no idea. If, if you didn't tell him what time it was, or he didn't have a, an ability to look at a clock, he would have no idea whether it was day or whether it was night. There was no photoreceptivity at all in his eyes. Now, he wasn't born blind like this man in John chapter 9, but as an adolescent, he had a very high fever that actually destroyed his optic nerves and made him unable to see ever. There, at least with medical technology as it stands, there is, is no hope that he will ever be able to see again. Now, Travis is a special guy. He didn't let his blindness slow him down one iota. He actually played as a center on his high school football team. And even though he couldn't see a thing, it was all based on audibles. And when I shared a house with, or an apartment with him, he was working on a PhD in preaching. And He's now got his doctorate, and he's teaching at a university in Kentucky. And at this moment, he's actually on a missions trip to Peru. And it was amazing to see the kinds of things that, that Travis did. Even at one point, uh, he went tobogganing with some friends, and uh, well, that didn't really end very well. He had some stitches, and I think was concussed. But, but Travis didn't let his blindness stop him. They're even, at, they're even actually, well, they've made a movie about him, called 23 Blast that's coming out, I believe, later this year. But even though there's a lot of things that Travis could do, there were two things that Travis could never do. Number one, he couldn't heal his blindness. And number two, he couldn't heal his blindness. Apart from a miracle, Travis will never see again until he receives his glorified body. However, by the grace of God, Travis has been given spiritual eyes. He is able to see in a way that most people never see. Travis sees himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. He sees Jesus as the only Savior and has put his trust in him. And this is a result of the work of God entirely. And ultimately, this is, this is exactly what the narrative of John chapter 9 is about. On one level, it's about a man who was born blind and receives his sight from Jesus. However, far more importantly, it's about the need for spiritual blindness to be healed 
and how the works of God the Son testify to who he really is. D.A. Carson says that this chapter portrays what happens when the light shines. Some are made to see like this man born blind, while others who think they see turn away, blinded as it were, by the light. So this morning we're going to see from verses 1 to 7 how Jesus heals physical blindness. And then next week we're going to look at the reactions of various people to this miracle in verses 8 to 34. And then finally in verses 35 to 41 we'll see how Jesus heals spiritual blindness. So here in verses 1 to 7. This is sometime after the events of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus passes by and sees a man who had been blind from birth. Now, we don't know how we know or how they knew that this man had been born blind, but the, te- the scriptures testify that he was, li- he was actually blind from birth. And as we'll see, this is an important detail. The man testifies himself down in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So as if it wasn't enough to heal a man who was blind, Jesus topped every such miracle that had ever taken place before. So here the disciples probably saw Jesus looking at the man, and ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it's a valid question. There can be physical consequences to sin. Death and physical suffering are the direct result of sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins shall die. But this isn't just an Old Testament concept. The New Testament teaches it too. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now there is evidence that death and that sickness and death can be the result of sin. We think about it just in merely physical terms. When we think of diseases like HIV, AIDS, or cirrhosis of the liver. But the Lord may even bring illness as a direct judgment. Think about in Numbers chapter 11, when Miriam receives leprosy as a result of her rebellion against Moses. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, 29-32, where Paul says that those who do not discern the body while participating in the Lord's Supper eat and drink judgment on themselves. And he says that this has caused many to be weak and ill and some to have died. We also have in Scripture at least two times where the Lord struck somebody blind. In Genesis 19, the Sodomites are struck blind at the entrance of Lot's house. And in 2 Corinthians 6, the Lord struck the Syrians with blindness in response to the prayer of Elisha. So there is evidence this can actually happen. God can actually cause things, even like blindness, as a, as a result of sin. But the problem here is that the disciples are drawing a direct correlation between this particular ailment and either the sin of this man himself or of his parents. Now, if the man himself couldn't be blamed because he was born this way, then his parents, 
must be at fault, they think. Now, the Lord may bring judgment on sin in the form of, of illness or other calamity, but we can't necessarily conclude that this is the case. It would be wrong to think that my housemate Travis had been struck blind because of sin. It would be wrong to conclude that the flooding in Calgary is as a direct result of sin. Now this can be the case, but we can't know for certain. So here these disciples are behaving like Job's counselors who accuse Job of sin in the midst of his misery. In Luke 13, Jesus asks whether the Galileans killed by Pilate or whether those who were killed by the Tower of Siloam, if they were worse sinners than anybody else. But Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now we're going to see through this passage that it's a, it mirrors in many respects. It was contrasted, I guess is more accurate, contrasted with the man that Jesus heals in John chapter 5. And we're going to see throughout that there's many different parallels. But Jesus tells the man, he tells the man to go and sin no more so that something worse may not happen to him. But notice, we'll see that, that this doesn't happen here in this passage, that Jesus doesn't ever tell the man to stop sinning. Now, obviously he was a sinner. Obviously his parents were sinners too. But the problem is drawing a direct correlation between his affliction and his sin. Now, quite often in the church, we are subject to the, the, the spirit of the age and the, the, the common thinking because of the media and, and even false teachers in the church, but maybe your thinking might be more in line with, with Buddhist or Hindu karma, thinking if I do good, good things will happen to me. If I do bad, bad things will happen to me. If you are a Christian, God relates to you through his grace in Christ. Now, God may discipline you as a father does a child, but you can trust that all things are working together for your good and for God's glory. But on the other hand, if you aren't a believer, then you are already under the judgment of God. With every breath, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment, Romans 2.5. Or maybe you've bought into the lie of the so-called prosperity gospel that the faithful Christian will never face severe trials. But beloved, suffering is a necessary part of the Christian faith. God never promises that he will deliver us out of our trials, but he does promise that he will deliver us through our trials. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 17. Our salvation is contingent upon our suffering. Now, it's not that we add to salvation by faith alone through suffering. 
But suffering is one of the means whereby God saves us, by, whereby God completes us. It was true for Jesus, and it will also be true for his disciples. Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So maybe the trial that you are facing at this very moment is the vehicle that the Lord will use to show you your need of Jesus. Either of, either of the, your need for Jesus in salvation or your need for Jesus in sanctification. So think again about this, this man who had suffered as a, as a blind beggar until his adulthood. Do you think he would have traded a hundred lifetimes of 2020 vision for the spiritual sight that he receives by the end of this chapter? Jesus tells his disciples the reason for his blindness in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So again, of course, the man was a sinner and his parents were sinners. But the man's blindness was not a direct result of his sin. God was going to do something far, far greater here. In God's greater purposes, this man had been born blind and was allowed to remain that way into adulthood in order that God's glory might be displayed in him. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that God will use a blind man to display his glory. Jesus says something very similar in, in John eleven four 4, when his dear friend Lazarus dies, at least for a little while, he says to the disciples, <clears throat> This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at this in a few weeks. But there, Jesus waited two more days before going to Lazarus so that Lazarus would be good and dead by the time Jesus got there. And maybe we have to recalibrate our thinking a little bit in order that it lines up with the word of God. We think about the way God operates. Are we dealing with, with the Lord on the basis of our human, man-centered thinking, or are we letting God's word tell us what God is like? So you might be, hang, might be thinking, well, hang on for a second. God is a good God. He's a loving God. This is just bad luck or, or bad genes. Or, or this is from the devil. This could never be from God. Now, if that's your view, let me ask you a question. Is Satan allowed to do anything ever that usurps God's control? Is there anything in the entire universe that usurps God's control? If that's true, then God is no longer sovereign and God ceases to be God. Consider Isaiah 46, 9-11. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When God foretells the future, He's not prophesying things that are going to happen by themselves. He's just saying what he's going to do. As C.H. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. There is nothing too big or too small to escape God's control. Nothing. He is the sovereign of the universe. And even though God is not the author of sin, he is sovereign over sickness. So this man's blindness is under the sphere of God's control. God is even sovereign over floods. Hendrickson wrote in his commentary on John 9.3, he said, All things, even afflictions and calamities, have their ultimate purpose, the glorification of God in Christ by means of the manifestation of his greatness. So Jesus is giving the reason here in John 3. He says that, that this, this horrible thing, this man who has suffered with blindness from birth until adulthood, suffered these things so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a far greater purpose for this man an eternal purpose. So Jesus continues in verses 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus had a specific ministry to perform. The good works which God had prepared in beforehand that he should walk in them. This was a divine appointment. Appointment. The Father sent him to heal this specific blind man at this specific time. This was not just some random miracle. Jesus didn't, didn't just go along saying, I'll heal that person and I'll heal that person just randomly. Everything that Jesus did was intentional. Everything. Jesus was here fulfilling his messianic role. This is direct fulfillment of the role of the suffering servant. If you'll turn, please, to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. The second part of, the last part of, of Isaiah is, is all about the Lord's chosen servant, the role of the Messiah. And verse 6. We read, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Verse 7, to open the eyes oh, that are blind, to bring, out of, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And that's why when, when the disciples of John came to the disciples of Jesus, asking, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He said, tell them this that the eyes of the blind are being opened, that the deaf are being healed, that people are being raised to life again. This is the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when he heals somebody, when he heals this man, he is declaring something. He is declaring, I am the Messiah. I am the one that the Jews claim to be looking for. I am God the Son. But he says here that, that the that night is coming when no one can work. The time for Jesus was drawing to a close. Darkness was coming. And he was speaking here specifically of the coming time of his crucifixion and resurrection. And think about the last three hours of the crucifixion when the land was covered in darkness. This is a physical manifestation of what was happening spiritually. Jesus was the light of the world while he was in the world. Now, of course, he's here referring to his incarnation and also to his pre-incarnate visits to the, the, the patriarchs and to the prophets. But the definite article is not present in the Greek. He's really saying, I am light to the world. Now, the concept of, of Jesus as light to the world is repeated throughout John's gospel. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And even to this day, even though Jesus is not physically present in the world, he is still, he is still light to the world. As he shines through the power of his Holy Spirit, especially in his people, in us, brothers and sisters. Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So when we reject the darkness of this world, and walk in the light of Christ. Walk in obedience. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We shine. We shine. But we don't shine our light. We shine the light of Christ. Kind of like that the moon has no light of its own, but it reflects the light of the sun. I don't know if you looked out and saw the moon over the uh, two nights ago. It was, it was beautiful and big and full. But the moon, you don't really notice it during the day. You can see it there in the sky, but, the, but in the darkness of night, the moon shines that much brighter. So as we walk 
through this dark world, and it seems to be getting, at least our culture, darker and darker all the time, it is more imperative than ever that we shine the light of Christ. But so often we act as though we have all the time in the world. We, we hide our light under a bushel. We neglect the good works that God has called us to, whether it's, it's dealing with besetting sin or getting right with somebody that we've wronged or sharing the gospel with a, a family member or neighbor or co-worker or helping somebody who's in financial or practical need. But whatever the situation is, so often we take our time because we think it's our time. But it's not your time. It's God's time. We don't know how much more time we have in this life. So don't waste it. Night is coming when no one can work. So the time for Jesus on earth was drawing to a close. And we don't know whether today might be our last day on this planet. Are you working to shine the light of God as his light shines in you? Here, having pointed to himself as the light of the world, Jesus now illustrates this point with a living parable. He opens the eyes of a man who was born blind. Now this time, Jesus takes the initiative. Other times he responds and performs a miracle when those who ask, but nobody asked him to do it. Nobody asked him to. This man wasn't saying, Lord, heal my sight, as other blind men had done. And here we see the first of many, well, another of many parables with the crippled man from John chapter 5. Jesus sought that man out, just as Jesus does the blind man here. C.K. Barrett says, The blind man, introduced as a theme of theological debate, becomes the object of divine mercy and a place of revelation. So Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud out of the spit, and applies it to the man's eyes. Now, his use of, of saliva in this miracle is reminiscent of, of two other times when he does it. In Mark 7, 33, when he heals the deaf mute by putting his fingers in the man's ears and putting his fingers in the man's mouth, and, or his fingers on the man's tongue and spitting. And then in Mark 8, 23, Jesus spit on the man's eyes and laid hands on him to heal him. Now, have you ever had anybody spit on you? It's kind of embarrassing, but I've actually had it happen twice. The second time, I probably deserved it. The first time, I'm pretty sure I did it. It's not a very nice feeling. But Jesus here uses saliva. Uses his saliva to heal this man. But, but what's the deal with it? Why saliva? The Jews attested to its healing properties. The pagans thought it was magical. Some of the early church fathers thought, thought it was an allusion to Genesis 2-7, where God made man from the dust of the ground, and here he is creating sight where once there was none. Calvin suggested that the mud intensified the blindness and so made the, the 
the, the miracle of, of providing sight that much more glorious. But in order to understand the why, in order to understand why Jesus used this spit, we need to understand the when. Jesus did things in different ways at different times. This is the only time that he did this. If you notice throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, there's very few times that Jesus heals a person the same way. Here he uses mud and spit. Another time he just uses spit. Sometimes he just says this at a word. Sometimes he says it using a word at a distance. Sometimes he prays to the Father. It's different virtually every time. And there's probably many reasons for this, but one of which I believe is that, is that is so that we don't look at, at these things as techniques. I mean, otherwise, if Jesus did that every time, we'd probably have, have churches where you could go and get holy, holy mud put on your eyes in hopes that it would actually heal you. But whenever Jesus did something, as I said earlier, it was always with intentionality. Everything that Jesus did, he did for a purpose. If you want to understand the why, you need to look at the when. Look down at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Here we see another important parallel with John chapter 5, where he healed the man who had been a cripple on the Sabbath and told him to take up his mat and walk. Jesus performed this divinely appointed miracle at this divinely appointed time in order to challenge the Pharisees and their view of the law. They were adding to the law with the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a complex system of laws that, that laid down what you couldn't do or what you could do, especially on the Sabbath. The Mishnah has 39 rules for what you could do on the Sabbath. And one of them is that you couldn't make mud out of spit on the Sabbath. Now, I've talked about this before. I don't know why anybody would want to make mud out of spit on any day but particularly on the Sabbath. And the reason why is because mud is used to make bricks. And so making mud out of spit on the Sabbath constituted work, and you couldn't work on the Sabbath day. It was okay for you to spit on a rock on the Sabbath day, but you couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath day because that was making mud. And that's the, de the degree of the control that these, these false laws, had the, the, the Pharisees had put on the Jews. And so Jesus, by doing this, is confronting those who would add to the word of the Lord. Now, did Jesus have to use mud to heal the man? Of course not. We've talked about this before. He, he, he could heal in any number of ways. But he did this to prove a point. He was proving that the Pharisees' system of ethics was wrong. And then there in verse 7, he told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. 
And again, we're reminded of John chapter 5, which, which took place at another pool, the pool of Bethesda. But the word Siloam was originally Shiloh. Shiloh. And Genesis 49.10, which is a, a messianic prophecy, if you please turn with me in your Bible there to, to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The ESV translates Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the, be the obedience of all the apostles. Now you might be, if you've got a different version there, you're probably noticing something. Both the NASB and the King James correctly translate it, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Now, it literally means he whose it is. We said it, it came to mean, came to be known as Siloam, which means sent. Now, the waters of the pool of Siloam flow from the Temple Mount, and they're symbolic of the spiritual blessings that come from God. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, we read that the waters of Shiloh flow gently. And Ezekiel 47.1, that the water issuing from below the threshold of the temple to the east. Now, practically, this pool was a very important water source. After Hezekiah had dug the, the water tunnel from the, the spring of, of Gihon to the, the pool of Siloam, the people of Jerusalem had a constant water source. Even during the time of siege, they would have water. And this, this pool actually, actually exists. You can still visit, visit it to this day. And the Pool of Siloam provides another link with the Feast of Tabernacles that had just taken place. Remember that the, the water that was used in the water-pouring ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles was drawn from where? From the Pool of Siloam. So this man obediently went and washed in the pool and miraculously came back seeing. Imagine his joy. Remember, he hadn't ever seen anything ever before. I could talk to Travis about things that he had seen before he lost his sight, but this man hadn't seen anything ever. The blue of the sky, the green of the grass, the faces of his family were all new to him. He was seeing these things for the first time. Now, his vision didn't come from his obedience after he was sent, but by the power of the one who was sent from the Father. But his spiritual eyes were not yet opened. This won't happen until the end of the chapter. And that miraculous bestowal of vision will make this one pale in comparison. The bestowal of spiritual sight on a man who is spiritually blind is far more miraculous than even opening the eyes of a man who has been born blind. For real sight, for real cleansing, we must go to Jesus, the one who is sent by God. This man went and washed and came back seeing. 
But as we're going to see next week, even as this man saw and believed, so the Jews rejected Jesus yet again. Just as the Jews had rejected the waters of Shiloh in Isaiah 8.6, they were still rejecting the sent one of God. So beloved, let us never be numbered among those who are rejecting the sent one of God. Let us go to Jesus, who alone, who alone can open our spiritual eyes, who alone can cause us to see who God really is. Let's pray together.